0: Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek.
1: And I'm Ryan Cooper.
0: And today we have Immanuel Kant, 18th century philosopher, theorist, greatly influenced all philosophy since, man of the Enlightenment, for the Enlightenment, uh, basically the, uh, <laughs> the, the lover of the Enlightenment in all the ways that one can conceive of that. And we have to go with, Kant, uh, another takedown of a a faux public intellectual that we will quite enjoy uh, raking over the coals. Is that right, Ryan?
1: Uh, Well, I view it as doing our civic duty. You know, we we must serve public reason.
0: My moral intuition says that reaming him every way possible (laughs) is the right thing to do. And then I have a post hoc rationalization for why that's that's good uh, as a citizen. Okay, so uh, should we? I guess we'll keep him in suspense, shall we? Of course, they'll see the little spiel about who it is. Should we? Should we just tell them? Yeah, I know.
1: Yeah, so we're ta- we're talking about Jonathan Height here. We're gonna we're gonna take a take a look at his um, shtick.
0: I want to call him Hate instead of Height because then we could say it's Hate on Hate, just like we Hate on hate, You know, it's, yeah. It's a fun little but Height Height.
1: Height. Yeah, as I, height. I uh, would have said <laughs> hate because I mispronounce everything. But um, I think I saw on his own website that you say height. So oh, well, he's Jonathan Hate from now on.
0: Well, there's a moral intuition I have that we should respect people's own pronunciations of their names. And God, it's so boring already. All right, here we go. Emmanuel uh, Kant, my friend, he was German, as you might have guessed, and. Basically, besides his three critiques, uh, was a thinker whom every subsequent major philosopher in Western philosophy had to respond to. Um, So, uh, voluminous, systematic, and brilliant was his writing, uh, that he was a major force. And so, what we read today is an essay of his. It was uh, a short piece called What is Enlightenment, and it kind of captures, so obviously he's a moral philosopher, he's a political philosopher, um, epistemology he was foundational and contributing to. But but this piece is really, I think, something that helps capture for us um, the overall project for what would become um, these type of Enlightenment thinkers. And again, there's the Scottish Enlightenment with Hume, and there, there's, there's variations um, and complexities within it, but... The type that we see manifesting today in in centrist liberalism, I think, is uh, the kind that is reflected in in the project and underpinning assumptions of of this text. You think so? Let's so? dive right in. I well, yeah, I think I think so. I think the um, naive as we'll see optimism in a certain march towards progress and a certain capacity of individual human beings through their reason to. Uh, to inevitably get us there if they, if certain things happen. Okay. Um, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so why don't, why don't you take us through this this essay here and, you know, what, what sort of his his argument is.
0: Michelle. Uh, so Kant opens up by writing in German, so translation. Enlightenment is man's emergence from him, his self-imposed immaturity or nonage, depending on the translation. And so this opening defines what enlightenment comes to be seen as, as the kind of breaking free of the self-imposed ignorance and lack of development, Um, immaturity in not developing as man, human beings, are meant to, right? Uh, He then goes on to essentially talk about the failings morally in terms of laziness and cowardice that prevents people from having the courage, right? The courage to think for themselves, the courage to simply break free from the, uh, the kind of unthinking adherence to the opinions of others that uh, prevents the progress of what he would call public reason and the kind of coming together of uh, awakened courageous autonomous intellects to rationally through public discourse and reason uh, understand what is, what is good. And, and that is the, the march towards progress in essence. Kind
1: of. Yeah. So he's, that, he's, 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 he's sort of casting his own society as just like, you know, chained down by a bunch of irrational garbage. This is just the, the dross of history is, is an anchor chain um around the neck of society and and what you know thinking men of course it's men at this point need to do is get together and um you know have have exchange reason and dual experimentation and so forth and and like break loose of of these of the you know the chains of history
0: that's it yeah and so you'll notice immediately that both the faculty of reason and the truth or wisdom that is being discerned through reason are these transcendentals, right? The, these things that exist above and beyond, um, you know, outside of time, outside of culture, uh, and simply waiting to be grasped and understood uh, in this kind of uh, progressive development that cannot be undone once, once it's achieved. So he, he says, for example... It is more nearly possible, however, for the public to enlighten itself. Indeed, if it is only given freedom, enlightenment is almost inevitable. There will always be a few independent thinkers, even among the self-appointed guardians of the multitude. Once such men have thrown off the yoke of nonage, or immaturity, they will spread about them the spirit of a reasonable appreciation of man's value and of his duty to think for himself.
1: Yeah. Just works automatically like that, and I see this, you know, like it. It uh, obviously ties right in with his, you know, his faith in in logic and reason. Um, I feel like is reflected in his famous is his most famous idea, the categorical imperative, which I, if I remember my philosophy class. Um, it's it's really kind of worth going through and seeing, uh, you know, the how this guy who is a you know world historical brilliant intellect, and he's got this faith and he and he like puts it to use and he tries to say like okay you you can correct me here but but basically. Like the categorical imperative means is that you, so you should always do certain things, you should never do other things because you know that that which you can will to be a universal sort of rule across all society that's that's the moral thing. Because and you go through this like very elaborate train of reasoning, like to 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 say otherwise would be to to be like a, a world in which uh you know like. M- logic and meaning it's, itself would be senseless and it's like yeah
0: it's, yeah
1: it's it's a very like it's it's a very impressive sort of intellectual architecture the structure he's built up and at the same time like it's uh it's it's kind of bullshit you know like cuz you can think up a very easy counterfactual you know it's like you should never lie to the police or something like that you know just like a, like a very like like just silly sorts of thought experiments, where there's, uh, uh, you know, where like in the case where you know break some rule to prevent like a huge disaster from happening, and and so forth. But yeah, so it's,
0: it's interesting. I mean, I, look, I I don't want to give Kant short shrift, or, Jonathan Haidt is is no Immanuel Kant. Okay, so so let's just no. uh, let's just let's just establish that this is not hate on Kant in any way. He was a, a, a brilliant um, philosopher uh, with a lot to to, uh, to think about and influenced a lot of subsequent important philosophy. But uh, you know why not talk about the categorical imperative? This moral philosophy is super interesting and it, and it kind of shows um, what you're talking about, which is an approach that is. Uh, it is literally about discerning moral reasoning and the structure of what is good or bad as if you were discerning uh, some other universal um, law right so something that is always and everywhere applicable and um, specifically for example the 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 first formulation of it that that you spoke of um, you're right it's about logic it's it's <sighs> How to put it? When you will yourself to do something, to do an action, you should, again, that's the normative piece, you should only will that you do that if universalizing that will for everyone would be logically consistent, is one way to think of it. So it could be, in other words, it could be a moral law, a universal moral law, or a categorical imperative, not a hypothetical, but a categorical imperative. Because if you willed it as an imperative for everyone, that everyone willed it, it would not undo itself. And so th- there is an interesting example, several that he gives, but let's say you want to lie to somebody. You want to, um, you know, for some particular reason, you think in this instance, uh, you want to kind of maybe make a promise. You want to promise, you know, Coops, I want to uh, borrow a hundred bucks from you and uh, and I'll pay you back, you know, my next paycheck, Okay. And I have in my mind some good reasons for, look, I, I'm not going to pay him back, but I, I think actually, <laughs> I think Coops is going to spend the money on, on booze otherwise, and I really want to help his health, and so I'm going to trick him into giving me some of his booze money. Uh, and that's just in my head what I'm thinking, right? Um, if, you un- if you universalize the, uh, the will to promise something and then breach it, right? logically what happens is no one will trust anyone because everybody every no one will be upholding the promises and the very way that i can trick you is because most people most of the time actually uh are honest and keep their promises if people weren't keeping their promises you couldn't take advantage of that and deceive someone right and so it's like literally a logical inconsistency um and and what he's what he's trying to get at is uh you know, it, he has, of course, an even more famous version of it the formulation that never treat somebody as a, merely a means to an end, but always as an end in, in themselves. Uh, and then the third formulation is that essentially he's seeking this kingdom of ends where if you picture, because we have all these examples, like the Nazis come, that they're looking for uh, the Jews, and of course you should lie, even though Kant says, no, you know, if everyone lies, then honesty won't mean anything. And it's, problem right um of course if Kant's moral philosophy works and everyone is doing this then there won't be any fucking nazis in the first place to worry about right yeah so so it it, and in fact if you think about it that this this rational approach to things says that like the reason we have so much trouble is everyone's thinking that their condition and their specific situation is unique and and giving themselves permission to do something that is generally not good and if people stop doing that, that everything will be better. <laughs> so it's interesting, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting, you know. And I think that, p- like, post Kantian, uh, post Kant, Kantian type of people have have tried to rescue. I think with some success. You would probably know more about this than me, but you know, versions of the categorical imperative or similar type of reasoning that that doesn't. F- Fall to like really like just blunt utilitarian attacks where you're just like, well, what if the aliens are invading and they say lie about you know your your grandma's toenail or we're gonna obliterate the entire universe or something? <laughs> and like, I think you can sort of build some structures around that to save save it from those type of objections. Um, I but still you know, don't it- buy it, but I you know you, it does get more sophisticated. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I think the inter- interesting thing and, and the relevance for for leftism um at least with respect to the the Jonathan um height piece or book that we'll talk about, The Righteous Mind, is the kind of assumption that at the individual level, this is where um first of all that progress is inevitable if individuals use reason right these are the, the foundations so yeah. uh right uh and, and so this ontology is is totally atomistic and totally so so uh, the tricky thing is as we'll see with with uh Haidt is he's not ignoring the role of emotions or or other parts of the human biology that play into things because one might say that kant is being um perhaps it's problematic that he thinks human beings can behave or do behave in this way. And, and that to, to, uh, to be naive and think that if we just, uh, become autonomous rational agents, we can will ourselves to be good. And that'll just create this beautiful world. Right. Um, but you can see for, for example, why Kant's is really the philosophical foundation for something like the United Nations. Okay. So, so it's, it's a clear, um, <laughs> Clearly, we see this, this kind of liberal human rights, uh, global world order that pictures an approach to, um, to politics and to, to life that, um, that has quite a lot of faith in the ability of, of individual human reasoning to uh, produce outcomes. Uh, of course, as we know from the left, that misses a whole lot of structural factors and forces and material conditions that... Um, that are really, really important and the ways in which individuals also uh, come to act and think and reason and argue, not just individually, but collectively, right? So, uh, you know, we could get to some of that, but but I don't know, you know, what uh, what I think is maybe even more important is kind of this normative goal of positing that at the individual level, throwing off the yoke of other people's authority over you and asserting your rational, uh, public, you know, joining in public reasoning, uh, leads to ultimate freedom and the march for progress. It's kind of this, in a way, very ap- like it basically subordinates politics to this kind of individual ethics, this individual rational ethics and politics aren't necessary basically anymore. Right. And that's where the danger is because the da- and that's why I think we can lead to the civility talk that that not just uh, height. I really want to call him hate, uh, but not just he, but but these other public intellectuals, uh, the pinkers of the world, the Jordan Peterson's, the um, Perry the Weiss. P- yeah. And the, the pundit class writ large uh, civility, 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 discourse, 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 um, because underlying all of that is this enlightenment belief that if we simply have procedural uh, freedoms to discuss things like rational humans, right, all these conflicts of interest, class differences, um, differences of of race, differences of power, uh, none of that will matter. And freedom will just be an inevitable thing that unfolds before our very eyes, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I think we'll you know, we'll get into that I think in a second, but I, I, I also want to just put like w- one note of historical uh uh context here. So um Kant is in the eighteenth century, right? Yeah. He yeah so this is seventeen
0: seventeen eighty four this was published. Right.
1: Um so the the previous like two centuries of European history and especially in Germany were just some of the awful and you know most senseless wars that have ever happened. Um you know wars that were not like especially the 30 years war which was uh, 1618 to 1648. Yeah. Um wars uh, I mean it, it killed like a quarter of the population of Germany Um, and it was, it was about religion. It was about, uh, you know, these sort of just weird political structures that they had at the time and just people sort of fighting for the sake of fighting or that they had been fighting before. And, um... I think in in that you know, looking from that history, which was not that long ago, and there was also you know like other wars of religion in France and elsewhere during that time. You think like, geez, you know, if we just sat down and thought about this like rational humans, we could probably avoid that sort of thing. I think that's wrong, but I think it's a it's a it, you know it's it's maybe a little bit more understandable after. Per, particularly that senseless that you know the 30 years war really had a lot of impact on the sort of the thinking of of germans especially um in that you know in the next like you know 100 200 years after it happened um it was, yeah, it was I, terrible
0: i think we also i remember when we discussed uh, thomas Hobbes, right who um yeah, who really was right after all that carnage, or contemporaneous even with all that carnage? Um, talk about carnage, Trump. You should have uh, you should have seen the the seventeenth uh, century. Um, but you know, for Hobbes, because of being in the wake of all that religious violence and and killing in the name of um, thinking you knew who the the true God was, and and thinking that you had access to. Um, So this is what's interesting to these transcendentals. Hobbes tries to really go the secular route and eliminate, you know, have tremendous epistemological skepticism and really, really make the purpose of, uh, you know, what he would call uh, the social contract to uh, agree not to kill each other and have peace and stability as the very foundation and goal um, of the political life. Now, Locke comes after him and has a little more distance from, from that degree of violence. and so kind of builds a slightly higher, right? So we've, we've fallen from the ancient times, uh, with the tremendously high lofty goals of, of politics being human flourishing and, and, and excellence and cultivating, uh, the good life. Right. Um, and, and you know, Christianity mapped onto that and it basically said you're pilgrimaging from the city of man to the city of God with Augustine and and you can achieve salvation. And you know, we've with with Hobbes, you kinda have this move that says, let's let's just not kill each other in the name of God. Um yeah. and in so in so doing, makes it uh very, very much about justice and the good is whatever law says it is, and let's just make the Leviathan the all-powerful. Adjudicator of that, etc., etc. Locke has a little distance, so he's like, you know what? How about we try to make uh, households wealthy, and you can flourish through this, you know, proto-capitalist notion of wealth creation and preservation, and private property is protected. When Kant comes along a a bit later, a little bit later, you know, this is not that long after the uh, Declaration of Independence. Adam Smith publishes Wealth of Nations in 1776, and there's this democratization. Um, of the individual that Hobbes really instantiates as the locus of meaning and agency. Uh, And from there, Kant is doing something slightly different, which is saying, really, the individual has all this power to uh, self-regulate and ethically and morally kind of bypass those... political means of, of adjudicating these matters, right? It's kind of, obviously, starting with the Protestant Reformation, this, this really um, you and the universe kind of situation. And it does stabilize this kind of Enlightenment uh, secular um, you know, separation of, of church and state and so forth. So um, that leads, of course, to this, this kind of whole movement towards um, the false idol, I think, of, of reason and science together, though, right?
1: I guess, yeah, maybe as a final thought on the Kant, you know, I, I would just say that I think that his, you know, in this essay, the kind of enlightenment boosterism is maybe a bit more understandable, I guess, was sort of, sort of what I was getting at with that, uh, you know, right. the, the, no, the note about the Thirty Years' War. I think that it's a, it's a lot more of a convincing yeah. argument.
0: Context matters. One more way in which it's understandable, if I could just very quickly. Um, you, you might have noticed in there, Ryan, his talk about public reason, where he wants to maintain the the, the obedience and the duty to fulfill your particular civil roles, whether you're a professor or whether you're a priest, whether you're a tax collector. Yeah. Um, he's making this distinction at a time when basically in all those formal roles, um, it's quite evident that you're supposed to not go against the church. You're not supposed to uh, make your own decision about whether people owe taxes. You're not supposed to uh, go against what the institutions want you to do. So he's trying to make some space. He says, you know, uh, essentially in your role as a pastor, you're bound to preach to your congregation. And this is a quote in accord with the doctrines of the church. um, And that you were ordained on that condition. Um, But he writes, as a scholar, this pastor in in the position of a scholar now, indeed has the obligation to communicate to his public all his carefully examined and constructive thoughts concerning errors in the doctrine. So it's this move where he's making this private public distinction. Uh, so that there's stability and order. But you can still, in this one sphere, the public sphere, challenge authority uh, in these ways. So that's very important, right? And leads to notions like freedom of the press and freedom of speech as fundamental to publicly reasoning about how to change those institutional structures, powers, and, and ways of doing things. So super important, and it does lead to kind of um, changes in uh, Western civilization that we think of as, as liberatory and good. Uh, the problem is, like, the March to Progress stuff and the lack of um, pointing out the dangers of this kind of, um, in a way, an idolatry of, of, of reason at the individual level, uh, something that Rousseau really critiqued uh, strongly, is, I think, one of the shadow sides to this kind of Enlightenment thinking that is very much problematic today. And maybe that's a good, good kind of transition to the, to the good old John. I'm not going to call him Hater Heights hate or whatever anymore. I'm going to call him good old John. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so uh, <clears throat> so Jonathan Haidt, he's uh, a professor at New York University, I believe. Yes, uh, Stern School of Business. He's a psychologist there. He d- he does a lot about the psychology of morality. He's written uh, b- uh, books called "The Happiness Hypothesis," uh, "The Righteous Mind." Why good people are divided by politics and religion in 2012. So that that was the one that really put him on the map. I think it's fair to say. Um, and he also wrote uh, another one called with uh, called the coddling of the American mind. Uh, so by by uh, this guy. So this one was co-written by this a free speech activist called uh, named greg lukianoff and also him
0: <laughs> how do you get all the names you get all the names to pronounce
1: <laughs> everyone's got to be named jeff spross from now on uh, that's um,
0: why we keep having spross on his name is, it's very straightforward it's good yeah
1: this one has not gotten i would say near as much attention i mean the 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 more the Righteous Mind was a, was a mega bestseller, it really hit this sort of sweet spot, that lightning in a bottle type of thing that really got him all I, over yeah. TV. He did like oh a boy. dozen TED Talks on this. Um,
0: even, even the hipsters are reading it in the cafes, and it, it makes me a little nauseated. But yeah. I'm happy that people are reading these days, but still. Yeah
1: but he's very much a sort of enlightenment leg humper like our buddy Steven Pinker from before um Lick
0: spittle, leg humper
1: <laughs> the uh the you know so this this uh the most recent book which which is from well, i think it was published this year 2018 um was is all about like it it was sort of like pitched at the you know campus uh, the, the, the 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 moral panic over campus illiberalism. Oh, right. That's you know, right. we're like, oh, the, the, the lefties are are shutting down free speech on these on these campuses. And, you know, oh, you, you, it's getting so that Richard Spencer can't even get a talk at give a talk at <laughs> Oberlin College without someone calling him a big, stupid, poopy dumbhead. It's and outrageous. that That's outrageous. It basically is torching the First Amendment. And. So that's that's what that book is about but you know the it's it's sort of this one is much much less I haven't read it but you know like reading the coverage and reading the uh reviews 51? and what he's been been saying about it yeah some excerpts and so forth it's basically just it's it's v- quite cynical in the way that it's pitched but it's very much like it's about you know Public reason will solve everything. Speeches, is, speeches. Is, way you solve bad speech is with more speech. Like lib- liberals are being are are, are uh, self lobotomizing by by uh, not exposing themselves to dissenting viewpoints. And
0: uh, <laughs> that's nice. Yeah, yeah. Richard Spencer is just another dissenting viewpoint.
1: Yeah, and it's it's just he like, has the
0: courage. You know what? C- Richard Spencer has the courage to think for himself. He has the courage to break the immaturity of simply accepting liberal norms. Yeah, we should listen. We should listen to his important voice. He does,
1: and in fact, just here in D.C., uh, two of his two of his devoted fans, two brothers, um, they are named Edward Clark and another one. Hardcore neo-Nazis, Jeff, Jeffrey Clark and, uh, Edward Clark. Edward Clark recently killed himself directly after the, uh, almost at the same time as the, as the mass shooting in Pittsburgh at the synagogue. And Jeffrey Clark, his brother was recently arrested by uh Metro DC police, uh, for, uh, allegedly plotting another mass shooting. They got him on gun charges or something like that. And so, you know, the the this type of stuff about free speech uh t- the triggered liberals campus like the the campus snowflakes is not, you know, it's it's not really actually i would say that that the that the hardcore like the alt right the very extreme right wing sort of like like soft or camouflaged uh, fascists in this country have more or less ditched that type of rhetoric over the last even just couple of months or weeks but over the last like the, the before that the, the, you know since trump was elected in his first like year and a half up to that point this type of of rhetoric was very much in what they were, uh, you know, the way that they portrayed themselves. Milo Yiannopoulos and Richard Spencer and a lot of these other guys. It was like, oh, we're defending free speech. We're defending free speech. These campus libs, they just can't, they just can't uh, handle dissenting viewpoints, and you know, the the sort of uh i i think that like some of the some of the left kind of struggled to make the case against that you know because like you had a lot of you had a lot of sort of feckless liberals defending that you know it was like the a c l u when they defended famously the the like nazi march um at the time you know it was like i i will uh i won't defend what you say but i'll defend to the death your right to say it and like that's kind of a noble statement but i think it reveals in this circumstance like like the the limitations of public reason because you know the the, the a, a nazi march and i think it was like skokie illinois or something like that that is uh that is okay insofar as it does not threaten either the safety of the community or perhaps more importantly the political structures of the government you know so if you're talking about people who have no commitment to democracy who do plan to exterminate huge swaths of the population speech becomes this like you know kind of canard especially in that they are using it to uh, to sort of terminically infest the, the, the nation and sort of like take it down from the inside.
0: As as Corey Robin wrote about Scalia and Scalia as the affirmative action baby, uh, people, whether it's Scalia or Maya, Milo Yiannopoulos, they use the permissive uh, centrist liberal norms of toleration and, and, and procedural freedoms and freedom of speech uh, as a way to undo liberalism and to actually undo those freedoms by uh, accessing power so that they can, um, you know, further a very illiberal uh, right-wing agenda to, to oppress.
1: Yeah. And this is the, the big problem with you know, and, and where when, when you know, it's like you can point to all manner of campus protests where it's like, oh, you shouldn't have pushed that person. You shouldn't have, like taken their sign or whatever. Like this is a silly protest. Like there are like several thousand colleges and universities in this country and like young people are are often kind of dumb. You know, they're like getting their political legs and so forth. But like they're
0: barely human, as I'd like to say. In this they're, they're case, very, yeah. <laughs> so, no, my students trust me. Some of them can. I function. remember
1: being an un- 18-year-old undergraduate. I was not. I was kind of stupid in some ways. That's fine. That's good. <laughs> it's that okay. It's, everyone. It's, yeah, yeah. You're, you're still growing up, and that's good. That's it's it's it. a process.
0: It's part um, of your development. But in, in this case, to, you yeah. know,
1: when you're looking at fascists in Charlottesville. Uh, who are sort of manipulating the mores of like political protests? To in the case there, like one of them ran his car into a group of people and and injured twenty nine people, I believe, and killed one of them. You know the the the. the that,
0: I mean specifically because they were protesting the fascists. Yeah. Right, so presumably. you
1: scale it up and you think you know it's like okay, fascist. Do we defeat speech with North? Did we defeat the Nazis with speech? No, we defeated them with bullets and the Red Army. You know, it, it was a it became a fight to the death, and that you know like um when it when when you. I guess that like that's that's kind of like the extreme case of, you know, there being a sort of political formation, which is absolutely impervious to reason and only uses people's use of reason to undermine their, uh, you know, their 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 political groupings and their, you know, their um, functionality and to like put them in prison and eventually execute them without trial Be, you know it's like a like a, a grouping of the you know it's like Kant says in this essay uh he's you know talking about you know when <clears throat> when one does not deliberately attempt to keep men in barbarism they will gradually work out of that condition by themselves
0: yes that's that, the idea that that's the dangerous idea
1: yeah and, uh, you know, uh, if you're talking about an absolutely level sort of, uh, you know, a, a, a place in which there is no political sort of like ideology or argumentation of any, of any kind, maybe. But...
0: Well, look, here, here's what it misses. It misses that you need to create like a socialist leftist vision understands that to get a certain human subjectivity right, to develop, you need to change the the material conditions. The environment has to be a certain way to give rise to that type of subjective development, right? If you have a Mad Max world of scarcity and precarity and fear, right? People that want to become powerful, greedy, or even just combat that fear, as we've talked about before, or, or find empowerment in the spectacle of violence, uh, they are going to act in all these terrible ways. If, however, you create the ma- material conditions such that, right, there, there's not precarity, there's comfort, there's kind of maybe the feminine, fem- feminist ethics of care operating as the superstructure because the structure has allowed, right, for more cooperative, uh, equal ways of living. And you don't have this mad Max kind of, uh, condition that gives rise to those, those qualities of being then sure, then, right. You can have, uh, that space where people can progress <clears throat> in ways that we might be talking about. The problem is to think outside of that context, to think outside of the context of those material conditions of culture, of, uh, you know, the, the place politically where you're at, uh, is to just abstract man and human beings from their situation and circumstances and embeddedness uh, in such a way that becomes a very dangerous or can be a very dangerous uh, ideology.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and so I guess that, you know, the sort of take-home message I would emphasize here is that reason is a tool to achieve ends... You know, that, potentially limitless types of goals. Some of them horrible, and some of them um, good. But it's not going to really do anything in and of itself. Um, and you need, you know, you need morality. And maybe this is a good point to like bring up uh, Jonathan Haidt's major book, which, which is The Righteous Mind. Uh, this came out, gosh, what, almost six years ago. It was a right. sensation, and this really made That's, his reputation yes. among the That's TED stuff.
0: Talk circuit, and um, people are still talking about it, reading it, yeah, all over the place, public intellectual uh, top charts. Yeah, uh,
1: and what he does in this book is he, be, you know, so he basically like he does a lot of he he draws on a lot of like as moral psychological research to uh try try to sort of like categorize the types of moral reactions that that people have about things um and and here uh there's a a, a review of 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 his book by William B, William Salatan, one of the uh, w- Lords of Slate, who is uh, has all the same pathologies as Height, and he <laughs> just uh, this is a this is a good the perfect summation of why this book was so popular. Um, it says you're you're smart, you're liberal, you're well informed. You think conservatives are narrow minded. You can't un- understand why working class Americans vote Republican. You figure they're being duped. You're wrong.
0: <laughs> and, like, and I'll quote from the actual uh, text of The Righteous Mind. Please do. Um, yes, from the, the conclusion. Uh, to see how sophisticated it is, the, the conclusion um, is in two parts. One is in sum, and then actually the conclusion, but in some. Quote, people don't adopt their ideologies at random or by soaking up whatever ideas are around them. People whose genes gave them brains that get a special pleasure from novelty, variety, and diversity, while simultaneously being less sensitive to signs of threat, are predisposed, but not predetermined, to become liberals. They tend to develop certain characteristic adaptations and life narratives. And he goes on and on and on. And then he goes, once people join a political team, they get ensnared in, in its moral matrix. And he goes on, and this sounds so much like Jordan Peterson and basic kind of uh, psychologizing of, you know, explaining away any ideological differences based on actual important uh, normative or material consequences or differences, but instead just saying, you know, some people have certain moral intuitions because they kind of are creative types and they like diversity. And and he has in the book this uh, set of kind of universal uh, evolutionary psychology-based uh, um, designations about what human beings uh, think are, are moral categories, like loyalty and authority, like freedom and tyranny, uh, and so on and so forth. And he ends up determining from his own political normative view, that conservatism is more balanced in, in, in hitting on more of the moral foundations uh, intrinsic in our Darwinian evolution. And therefore, that's why they're more successful, because people... Uh, have the little synapses firing? They're like, oh yes, uh, that that language of of Trump is is talking about loyalty and authority, and oh, I hear the words freedom, and and it could not be more dumb. I'm sorry, it's just like extremely extremely reductionist and stupid. Uh, <laughs> and I would
1: say just just to just to drill down on the problem here, which is that you know he he construct he he more or less makes up these various moral categories, and he gives more of them to conservatives, I think, on purpose. Um, but setting that aside, he never uh, justifies the moral categories in any sort of like philosophical moral framework. He just says that's what they are. They're
0: there. They're just there. And this is that Enlightenment kind of scientism that Pinker has, that other people have. And, and it's, again, both reason and science together in this way that is... Above all, this kind of transcendental, empirically deduced, or, or I should say, um, d- discerned uh, reality that um, gets to replace actual normative competition of claims and, and arguments and, and philosophy. It's this way of through science, and whether it's uh, social psychology um, or, or whatever else, it gets to just replace um, actual values that, that come from... Um, something other than what the, you know, metrics of science tell us is good and bad. And so according to this way of looking at the human being, it seems that conservatives have, they hit more of the universal parts of, of moral intuitions, right? And, and so he says these things, I quote from him here, quote, I suggested that liberals and conservatives are like yin and yang. Both are necessary elements of a healthy state of political life. As John Stuart Mill put it, liberals are experts in care and then he goes on with these these ridiculous uh statements um so it's it's just this this piece of like his uh picture of the world that says we're all human we all have partial truths about what's good and bad we're just looking from different perspectives and if we could only understand each other better we would realize that Everything's already OK. This is, again, the Pinker thing with with the way that, that violence is at its lowest in history. And it's a march towards, um, you know, peace and stability. And shouldn't you be grateful for where we already are? You know, this is the same thing that, that, uh, that he's doing, which is can't we just be civil? He, he literally opens the book with quoting uh, Rodney King. Can't we all just get along? It's literally the quote he opens with. And, and can't we all just understand that this tug of war between liberal and conservative are just two important parts of the human psyche that are being played out, that you're just born with and are inevitable. So let's just not have too much of an argument about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, th- and this, again, to emphasize one more time, made him into an international celebrity this sad. absolutely fucking goofy argument um and so this this raises the question of why and i think the answer can be seen in a uh a recent controversy over the pod save america guys have you been have you been uh, watching this I did.
0: I did catch a bit of that. Yeah, one of the guys they had on the pod, right?
1: Yeah. So, so the Pod Save America folks, they have a token conservative. Uh, By the
0: way, you want to tell some of the audience might not know the the jokesters behind Pod Save America.
1: So the these guys, I think, are like generally sort of they're okay.
0: at least one of them is a literal former obama staffer right
1: i think two of them are so there's john favreau john lovett and tommy vitor um and then there's so so uh at least one of those johns follows me on twitter so that one's good whichever one that is yeah good job Um, john
0: excellent (laughs)
1: anyways they have a token conservative and um named Tim Miller. And so the New York Times published this massive article on Facebook that just uh uh on Wednesday this week. And in that article it detailed how Facebook had hired this this absolutely soulless Republican propaganda shop,
0: Tim. Let's call him Tim. That's right. He
1: worked for that company and he helped them with this um This PR stuff for Facebook to conduct uh, uh, anti-Semitic smears of people who had criticized Facebook, specifically the Open Markets Institute, which is a Barry Lynn, Phil Longman, uh, Matt Stoller's sort of this think tank.
0: So. so the anti-Semitic attacks were on this think tank, is what
1: the anti-Semitic attacks were on George Soros, basically I saying see. that George okay. Soros is the is a global puppet master of politics that he's he's funded these guys and he like gave them a little bit of money, but they get money from all over the place, so it wasn't like it was a total, you know, um, like he was like at, it was the only person behind them. Anyways, so Ashley Feinberg wrote in, wrote a thing about how this, uh, uh, looking into this guy's career. And so, you know, he's, he's done stuff for the NRA. You know, he talked about, uh, you know, how Democrats have pro-abortion pom-poms. Um, and, you know, behind the scenes, he was Colluding in anti-Semitism, which, as we as we just discussed, has uh, enabled you know the the guy who who shot up the the the, uh, the synagogue, industry. the synagogue. Yeah, he was he was absolutely uh, obsessed with these with these Soros conspiracy theories, and I think that that uh, it goes to show you the the appetite. Amongst mainstream liberals, to have a conservative, you know, I mean the the classic, the classic uh, uh, Robert Frost quote, you know, the Which
0: is misunderstood by the way. Should we get into well, that? Well, the
1: the okay, the the the, um, the quote is a liberal is a man who is too broad minded to take his own side in an argument, right?
0: Ah, uh, right, 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 right.
1: Yeah. Um. um yeah. Is that the one that's misunderstood? I
0: thought. I thought. I thought you were doing the uh, two roads in the wood.
1: No, no, I don't that read is, poetry.
0: Just did, no. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We got to do more poetry. But you know, I read a little a, bit, not for nothing. But uh, when Frost wrote that two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference, that is not meant to be a, a literal uh, aphorism. That is, is meant to mock the person that thinks that that actually made all the difference, and it's it's widely misunderstood in in tone. But neither here, yeah. neither here nor there. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but I think that that quote, I mean, it's a a bit of a caricature, but there's definitely some truth in it. And I think it goes to show you, you know, that that like basically Jonathan Haidt is a he's like a conservative. He's like a Brett Stevens conservative. And he's slant. He built this like bullshit theory to, to say conservatives are better than liberals. They're more moral. They're more honest. They're more in touch with their human nature or whatever. And
0: he, you know he even calls himself a liberal, though. But I think he's so liberal that he wants to call himself conservative. Shit. <laughs> I don't
1: believe that for a second. He's Brett Stevens, conservative, and yeah, um, you know, like liberals ate this shit up. Who is watching TED talks? Liberals, liberals who want to prove that they are open-minded, that they are, that they are, you know,
0: that like that they the, are the reasoned
1: rational, enlightenment creatures.
0: Yeah, that's it. And the liberals that love David Brooks, who's another conservative, actually. Yeah. But again, like, the liberal conservative distinction, which apparently Jonathan Haidt didn't realize because he didn't study political philosophy, is rooted in the same classical liberalism, historically and philosophically. He was just blown <laughs> away by this. He was like, wow, there's this connection between John Stuart Mill and Hayek? What? You know, he's like, but, but these these... <laughs> It was
1: astounding
0: yeah so uh you know the truth is that no more speech does not inevitably lead, right, more public reasoning, does not inevitably lead to freedom. Sometimes it leads to providing ideological and rhetorical justification for fascist or anti-Semitic violence, actually. Sometimes allowing these these anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists and uh, from Trump to Milo Yiannopoulos to whomever to spout off leads to, as we talked about with, uh, you know, about Gramsci and about Um, you know, Brad Evans and Primo Levi and, and, um, and violence uh, feeds into people's narratives that make meaning of their lives in such a way that they do terrible things. And you can't easily distinguish, right? um, What speech is going to do that and what's not, unless you draw these important political distinctions between, which is what both, um, I would posit that the heights and the and the david brooks of the world and your your normal uh stephen pinkers or other centrist liberal pundits don't want to do they don't want to make normative claims right about the actual substance they want to make procedural claims about democratic norms and, and allow the person to speak uh but they don't want to say that that is bad speech because it's fascist right and therefore we should resist it in every way possible yeah yeah, I think that's right.
1: And 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 um
0: so pod, pod Save America it what it's but it's beyond that that drive to be um tolerant, right? Do you think what what do you think motivates of all the people on their podcast to have on? What what do you think motivates that desire to bring on this Republican Douchebag. just
1: a guy they knew i I would yeah, imagine just a buddy? just sort just of a, a friend, yep. and they didn't think about it too much and they had this compulsive need, this irrational need to have a person right. they could display their own reasonableness
0: about well, that, that to me that suggests a type of uh smug elitist were the heroes, and this feeds into the other critique we've had of, um, whether it's neoliberals or centrist Democrats, the, the elites are going to save everyone. And you know what? Uh, it matters more that you belong to that group of people than if we slightly disagree politically, we can talk to each other and you're worth having on the podcast because we're, we're buddies and we're powerful and we have the responsibility, right? To, uh, to take this country in the right direction.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I th- yeah. I mean, you know, there, there. Uh, among not just liberals, but centrists and some conservatives, there's that pining for the for the days of Reagan, um, in which uh, you know he and Tip O'Neill would supposedly sit down over you know steak and and whiskey and like figure out you know make some deals um yes i yes. think that's a pretty pretty exaggerated though uh you know it was certainly well, no, a, an age look, in which compromise did happen
0: <laughs> but no I, you hear stories about how you know mccain and hillary clinton used to do shots in poland together or whatever and, and you know uh, orrin hatch and ted kennedy were were buddies uh, they were uh, as it as if like it should comfort us that our elites are basically just doing theater, and their putative ideological difference and in the interests they're representing don't actually matter. And what really matters is that they're all in power together being buddies, as if that should be a comforting thought, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. Yeah, the, the 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 best type of government is one in which the people don't have any idea who is responsible for what, you know, where it's just <laughs> like the, the, the various parties get together and sort of hash out some vague compromise and like you can't tell like what the hell is going on, but you know setting that aside, I think that you know the the big thing that people are missing here, and es- and I think especially liberals like like when uh, like like liberals who absolutely freaked out about Tucker Carlson, um, who who uh, according to a reporter friend of mine, Alan Pike, a guy I know and trust, he works at Think Progress. Uh, he was there at this protest where they went to to um, Tucker Carlson's house and um, the, like, like a handful of Antifa people, like 10 people, they went, they had a, like a megaphone and a tambourine and they like <laughs> went to his house and they, and they sort of, you know, they were doing some chants and they shouted at him and like knocked on his door a little bit and then one person one guy went and spray painted an anarchist, a symbol on his driveway and then they left. And it was so, just, you know, just, just minor, the absolute most minor of minor stuff that, that even the local police were like, "Uh, ah, just get out of here,
0: just get out of here. Yeah, not a problem, yeah.
1: Tucker Carlson lied about what happened he said I'm that shocked. Antifa I'm tried shocked. to kick his door down and crack his cracked his door. That does not appear in the police report which Alan posted on uh, Think Progress. Because it didn't happen. It didn't happen. They didn't you know, they, they were just trying to like basically, you know, yell at him. They were trying to do speech at him. That's what they were doing.
0: <laughs> they right, were doing
1: exactly. speech. Saying, hey, Tucker Carlson, fuck you. You're a, you're a white supremacist because he is a white supremacist. And on his TV program, he uh, whips up racist uh, harassment of people on a daily basis nearly against uh, Andrew Kaczynski of uh, CNN on multiple occasions. Uh, he posted the address of um, who's that guy in Esquire? Uh, Chuck.
0: Um- yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Is it Charles, though? Charles,
1: Charles Pierce. Charles, Charles Pierce, yes. Charles Pierce.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: they got de- harassment and death threats. Kaczynski had to leave his house. Um, he's done that many times. Uh, and so, you know, I think it goes... It, what this shows you is is the extent to which liberals have internalized and, have, and think that democratic norms are sort of the baseline ideology democratic enlightenment norms are what everybody thinks and are sort of like the foundations of politics and that's not necessarily the case you can have people who do not believe in democracy who believe in political violence who believe in 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 political racism People like Truckle Carlson. That's what they believe. They don't, you know. They they use their speech to lie about what is going on to do morally horrible things.
0: And, it's, it's a loose, Lucy in the football, and you yeah. know, yeah, exactly. And, and,
1: and the way that he tricks, you know, like uh, the number of like elite liberals, like big shot liberals, Stephen Colbert was defending Tucker over this um you know probably 2 3 dozen other people it 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 demonstrates i think how liberals like almost can't conceive of an ideological you know, opponent who does not believe in the enlightenment who thinks that the enlightenment yeah. <laughs> is garbage
0: but they also must subconsciously already believe that basically the biggest problem we have is civility. They must also be totally blind to the daily violence that the state and, uh, you know, basically neoliberalism is killing and harming and violently terrorizing people uh, through our military, through our police, through our uh, devastating way of, of allocating resources and taking away people's homes, their food. Uh, Any number of daily violences that so many people have to suffer are totally ignored because if they weren't, you wouldn't think that some person being yelled at, right, in front of his home who is perpetuating, not just inspiring certain crazy lunatics to, to, uh, to shoot up a synagogue, but... Holding on to the status quo that will prevent the radical change needed to help all those people, all the black bodies that are being shot and thrown in prison, all of the people that the status quo harms. Like we always think of what happens when change disrupts, you know, if it makes a a newscaster uncomfortable or or what have you, or if Antifa does something, there's a little property damage, a little scuffle with the, the actual fascists. Oh no, that's bad. Well, what are they trying to do? They're trying to disrupt a status quo which is always already violent nationally, locally, globally, and is so terrible, except that the people in power don't feel it or see it. And so they aren't disturbed. They think there's a peace that is reigning. And that, I think, is the fundamental problem uh, of of the liberal proceduralism.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it – yeah, it it totally – I mean – you were—I'm sure you remember this in the 2016 election when somebody like burned down the headquarters of the North Carolina Republican right. Party the
0: fundraising baby—and
1: they uh, a bunch of bunch of liberals went around passing the hat, uh, you know, to, to 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 and to donate money to the Republican Party, not with any kind of strings attached. They're just like, oh, we're going to replace this for you.
0: Yes, it's a nice symbolic gesture. Yeah. It, as as if the funding of the Republican agenda didn't actually kill and harm lives. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and it it and it it like you see what they're you, you could sort of see what they're thinking. This would be yeah. maybe you could say like going and, back
0: to Kant maybe actually, if everyone did acted this way, right? Yeah. Maybe this is the this this ties us back to Kant. If everyone simply acted this way, everything would be okay.
1: We set an example If we set an example, we convince people, we pretend as though it's the mid-1950s and there's this sort of suffocating blanket of conformity to where, like, this kind of thing is just, like, absolutely beyond the pale, uh, then things will be better. But they didn't realize what would actually happen and what would actually happen in North Carolina in particular you know, which was uh, like the like the whole state party was involved with just like basically systematically trying to steal the election, trying to like, you know, suborn the Supreme Court at the time. And, um, you know, just just uh, complete acting with utter contempt for anything you might you might call democratic values the norms of the enlightenment any kind of fair play or or like turnabout or respect for the things that you do and it's and it's you know you you it's something i come back to again and again you know like like americans think that the united states won the second world war and uh you know all the all of our movies or tv shows our uh you know our sort of national mythology i think you could say that america was very important in winning the second world war but the people who won the second world war were the communists they were the the red army the red army won the second world war that was like three-fourths of the second world war was an absolute slugfest bloodbath in eastern europe could the U.S. have beaten them, the the actual German, the German army, from, from a standing start without any, you know, the, 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 the Red Army uh, taking out three quarters of the German military before they uh, did any uh, invasion? Not confident.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I, th- I think uh, certainly kind of this atomistic liberal vision, whether it's— um Locke or Kant of political community as these, you know, individuated actors who are just operating uh, from self interest and, and for in, in terms of Locke's uh, economic uh, being and, and then Kant's kind of rational uh, autonomous agent. Are these the people that will understand and oppose the illiberal? Fevered passion of a narrative of anti-Semitism or fascism, um, or the kind of narratives and meaning making that inspires and inflames the passions uh, to sacrifice, right? Like the Kamikazes did, to sacrifice and go to all-out war as a means of um, supplying, supplying meaning. And, And so, you know, it's hard to rationally dissuade somebody from um that kind of affect laden um way of making meaning of of their purpose in the world and so if if you think that um you can convince anyone other than just another uh you know enlightenment liberal that way uh then then you don't understand the the theater in which you're uh engaged
1: yeah yeah and this you know it's just a kind of a, uh, uh, a fighting spirit, and I guess as a, as a closing comment, you know, you, you uh, Jonathan Haidt got all this respectful attention from entirely liberals. Conservatives do not care at all about what he says. You know, it's like a few, a, f- a few of the more intellectual ones like glommed onto his stuff as, as being, uh, you know, va- like validating their. Uh, politics. But, um, you know, you look today, and is there any way you could ever possibly justify the idea that conservatives are more moral than liberals? You know, Republicans are standing absolutely lockstep, with the exception of about 10 people in D.C., behind this Odious, racist troglodyte of a president who just—you know—he made uh, excuses for the the, the—you know—fascists at Charlottesville. uh, His—you know—his enthusiastic supporters, um, have. One of them was recently arrested, as we said in D.C. The other, the the MAGA bomber, uh, sent a bunch of bombs to uh, you know Democratic politicians. Um, he is keeping uh, you know children in tent cities, basically you know Boer War style concentration camps, and you know I mean the the whole entire. Everything about Republican rule is terrible. They're just awful people. And I defy any psychologist in this country to, def- to defend this fucking Republican Party to, you know, like... J- get Give give me a sort of maybe we'll talk about Carl Schmidt Schmidt in this in the next episode but but give me like an open fascist who's just like yeah, it's fine to murder tens of thousands of people to be to be to, in in preference to this this sort of mewling you know sort of brand obsessed TED Talk guy who's just like well yeah you know conservatives have super heightened uh, they they love authority and they're very t- triggered by disgust and and that's good because i said it is
0: <laughs> yeah and so the the jonathan uh hates heights damn it man i don't know how to pronounce his name either uh they are doing the work uh that we talked about in the gramsci episode of yes. um basically brainwashing all the people we need to be on board to fight the evil into perpetuating the evil through accommodation and toleration and the total blindness to the threat. Yeah. So he's just serving those ends and serving right smack into the the interests of the powerful and the evil. (laughs) So that's why we're attacking the Pinkers, um, the the Hates, uh, and all these public intellectuals because they reach so many people Right. Liberals who we need to radicalize, whom we need to radicalize. And those are the people that need to wake up. Right. They, they already know that Trump is terrible, but it's not because he's in civil. OK. And and other Republicans are terrible, too. And, and you need to just wake up and get on board with the political fight.
1: Amen. Amen.
0: That, that is some righteous anger in response to the bullshit righteous mind nonsense. OK. <laughs> All right. I think that's 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 uh, Yeah, that's a good that's a good place to stop.
1: Good. We're 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 over time. All right. But we will see everyone next week. Bye bye. Adios.